This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Monday, February 7th, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynes, uh, another weekend has gone by. Uh, we are firmly into the third month of this lockout uh, with no resolution in sight. The uh, latest is that the federal labor secretary, uh, Marty Walsh, has reportedly reached out to Major League Baseball and sort of wants to get involved in this whole uh, mess that he sees in front of him. Uh, with the players rejecting uh, baseball's offer of, uh, of a mediator at the end of last week, uh, how likely do you think it is that, that Marty Walsh is going to be able to have any influence over these negotiations? You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure, Joe. I mean, uh, maybe he will, uh, but, you know, he's going to have to convince the players because the players, I think, are very skeptical at this point. Um, you know, the owners are made the first move in this, in this, uh, labor, you know, labor disagreement with the lockout. And, uh, now they want to, they, they wanted to bring in federal, a federal mediator, the players turned it down saying, let's get back to the table. And now, uh, you know, the national labor relations, is that who the, it's the, the federal labor secretary himself, the federal so. labor secretary wants to get into it. So. I'm not sure. It, I, 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 does something, make- I, something has to give eventually here. I mean, it, it, you know, the clock is ticking and you would hope somebody could find a solution to this thing. Does this feel like the, the 1994 labor situation where, you know, the, the, the government got involved, you know, you know like you said, Clinton sent a, a negotiator to, to try and, you know, get things right. But uh, I don't know if this was sent from the White House, but, you know, when when federal agencies say, you know, start, uh, you know, stepping in and saying, Hey, you know, let's try and get something going here. Uh, you, you know, that, that both sides are pretty well dug in. Yeah. Uh, perhaps that that's a way to leverage things and get things started. Um, you know, I just think it's hard for a guy from the outside just to step into this thing and, you know, really, you know, kind of learn, learn the, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of the, all these issues, you know, on the fly and, and kind of, you know, bring these two sides together. I, I just, you know, I don't see that. I don't see that happening, but you know, it could be, I mean, uh, you know, the, the reason they got drug testing in, in major league baseball is the government got involved and they, they forced them to, to do something. And that, that might be the only way, uh, uh, that this thing gets settled. I, I don't know if, uh, does a, <laughs> Does the United States really feel Major League Baseball is necessary to, that, you know, with the Russians threatening in Ukraine? Are, are, are we, you know, do they really want to, you know, is this well, a, a burning issue 
to uh, Hoinsy going Hoinsy going global on us here. What do we got? <laughs> you, you've been watching too much CNN, man. I, I this yeah, is, yeah. This is what the lockout has produced. It's got it's got Hoinsy talking about Ukraine and Russia and everything. It's it's great. No, you've been watching the Olympics. That's what it is. You've been watching <laughs> yeah. the Olympics. I can tell already. Uh, so I think one of the more frustrating parts about this is that we haven't really seen them, you know, just lock themselves in a room and try to get something done. It's they'll meet for two hours and then they'll, they'll go to the press. And then two days later, they might get back together instead of really the, this, any sort of a, a concerted effort to sort of show people, yes, we really want to get something done until that happens. Everybody sort of remains really aloof about the whole situation. And a zero hour is really fast approaching. Yeah, I, I, I would think, you know, the, both sides are just kind of, you know, looking for an advantage. They're not really, you don't, you don't encounter, you don't feel that either side is really serious about ending this thing and, and getting, the, getting the players back on the field. It's just, you know, uh, when, you know, you, there's some encouragement when they can both get on the same page with this bonus pool for, uh, you know, players with, with less than two years of service time. But, you know, that, that is, you know, that's watered down by the fact that, you know, the players want a $100 million bonus pool and the, and the owners are offering a $10 million bonus pool. So, you know, it's like the old cat, a cat and mouse game. Right. And, you know, there's it talks that are a rumor that, you know, the owners are meeting at the end of this week. You know, maybe maybe this weekend is when we see some some significant movement start to happen. Uh, the The report date is coming up on what the 15th day after Valentine's day, maybe, maybe as a Valentine's day gift to each other, they, they, they get in a room, they hug it out. They exchange some of those candy hearts with the messages on them. And, and one of those is a breakthrough or something like we, we, we need, we need to see something here in the next couple of days. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just think, uh, you know, the, what the last, the strike got settled by, it was a, you know, a, the job, you know, the, the, uh, the, the legal system got involved with the judge, you know, passing, you know, ending this thing and, and, you know, putting, you know, lat the, uh, the, the uh, past CBA into effect again. So who knows if it, if it gets to that extreme, maybe that's, that's the answer. Yeah, that could be. Uh, and, and that would just give them more time to kick the can down the, uh, down the line as well. Well, uh, as, as messy and as ugly as the labor situation is in Major League Baseball, you know, they, they can still at least look over their shoulder and say, hey, at least we're not the NFL with uh, what's going on over there. Uh, over the weekend, Brian Flores, the uh, former coach in Miami, sued the NFL, uh, claiming racism in hiring practices for NFL head coaches. And I think, you know, even for as long as we've had the, the Rooney rule in place in the NFL, uh, that sort of forces teams to interview and look for minority coaches. Uh, they've got issues in terms of, you know, just the number, the sheer numbers of executives and coaches uh, in, in head positions there in that league. Uh, it's just as bad, if not, you know, even more so in baseball, where I can't even tell you uh, the names of more than more than one or two uh, front office executives that are that have minority backgrounds and the the head you know the managing situation uh it's it's almost all 
you know, white men on the bench coaching and managing uh, most of these teams. I think there's only a handful of minorities, most of them uh, Latin uh, and, and hardly any African-American uh, managers, head coaches in baseball. Obviously, Cleveland had an interim uh, manager last year in DeMarlo Hale, uh, one of the more successful managers in the American League, Dusty Baker. Uh, you know, he's in the top 10 all times in all time in managerial wins. Uh, but, you know, one or two examples is is not enough. I don't think it's, it's safe. It's easy to say and easy to see that Major League Baseball has just as much of a hiring problem as the NFL does. Yeah, you know, I, I would say so, Joe. Uh, you know, it's, you know, you know, the uh, the NFL, what they say, uh, you know, 70 percent of the players are African-American or black uh, in, in baseball, you know, between 28 and 30 percent of uh, the players are, you know, of a minority, you know, a lot mostly, you know, I would think from Latin America, you know, the they have not been able to draw the, uh, you know, black players back into the game. You know that that's uh, that's been uh, you know a sore point for years. So uh, you know it 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 is an issue. You know when uh, Bud Selig was commissioner, he uh, you know instituted a rule that you know minority candidates had to be you know interviewed for for openings. You know in especially managerial openings, but uh, you know that 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 you know is. It, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been a, a, an overwhelming success. Now that produces a situation where you've got Sandy Alomar going and being a finalist for, for managers, managerial positions in a bunch of places, but never getting the job. And then, you know, Sandy turns around and says things like, you know, I'm, I'm sick of being the, the token interview. I, I, if, if he should have been a manager a long time ago, as far as a lot of people are concerned, uh, there are, there are six my, uh, minority managers in all of baseball, six out of 30 teams. And, and that's, that's not a lot considering, like you said, the number of Latin players in the game. And uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's based on what, uh, what owners or what the front offices see and, and think that they want analytically. If, if that's the thing, I, you know, Sandy Alomar is, is up on analytics as, as much as anybody he knows, Every, every one of those, uh, you know, statistics, how to use them to a team's advantage. And I just, you know, in Cleveland, we've seen, we've got a history. Frank Robinson, you know, with, with Trailblaze, he was a, a pioneer in this regard. He was the, uh, the first black player uh, coach, manager uh, on the field, 19, what, 74. Um, so it, it goes all the way back to that. It, it, and there we've had uh, Manny Acta was a, you know, a manager here. So we, there have been minority managers in, in this organization before. Uh, I would think that, you know, there's, there's gotta be the room or the possibility to, to, to have that, that area explored uh, once Terry Francona decides to step down. Yeah. Well, you know, Sandy has been here a long time. Sandy was an interim a manager two years ago and got the team into the postseason. Last year was DeMarlo Hale. He did a nice job when uh, when Francona had to step aside at the end of July. So, you know, those are probably two two legitimate candidates, I would think. Um, you know, it's, you know, I I keep reading, you know, that, that 
know, this all goes back to ownership and, you know, you know, the ownership in the NFL and the MLB and major league baseball, most of those guys are rich white guys. And, you know, they like to hire people that look like them. And uh, so, you know, I don't know how that changes. You know, I, I really don't. I mean, you, 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 it, it's so, you know, it, it, it I think it, it should change. It has to change, but the vehicle of change is how do you make it happen? Yeah, that's, uh, and really there's, it has to come from within them. Somebody, somebody has to stand up and say, you know, there's something that's not right here. They, they need something more than just a Rooney rule. They need something more than just, Hey, you have to at least look at these candidates. There, there has to be some sort of incentive. And I think, uh, you know, the NFL does it right. I, I believe they, uh, they incentivize with draft picks if you if you promote and if you hire minority front office people. We saw that uh, recently with the Vikings hiring one of uh, the Browns uh, front office uh, general managers or away as a general manager. Uh, maybe there's something there you could do to incentivize for draft picks, and that would you know that also helps with the uh, the non tanking issue. Uh, Cleveland's got uh, has some uh, several very highly regarded uh, you know minority uh, front office executives that have been in the pipeline for the last few years. James Harris, Paul Gillespie, Victor Wong. Uh, these are all guys who continue to be promoted through the system every year. Uh, so you know maybe we'll see them in more uh, positions of power and influence uh, over the next several years. And and you know hopefully one of those guys goes on to become a, a general manager or a president of baseball ops at another organization, if not here in Cleveland. Well, they certainly, you know, yeah, definitely. They, they've become a uh, feeder system for the rest of baseball. You know, Cleveland has w in regards to front office people, front office personnel. And uh, you would think, uh, you know, that, that, that pipeline should continue. And, uh, you know, the, the Indians always have a line of succession in place. They're always ready to uh, promote from within if, if they lose people. All right. All right, here we go. Uh, I want to briefly mention, hey, if you want to talk about, uh, you know, minority hiring practices and, you know, who you would like to see on the bench more in Major League Baseball uh, and in the front office, uh, you know, send us your thoughts, uh, subscribe to subtext. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you there on, on that. It's a, a great way to exchange ideas with Hoinsey and myself uh, throughout uh, the season and the off season. Uh, if you've got ideas on the labor situation, on minority hiring practices in baseball, uh, you can join by going to cleveland.com slash subtext or by sending a text to 216-208-4346. These are the kinds of uh, things that we like to, to sort of you know, mine our, our subtext subscribers and get their thoughts and, and then turn those into, you know, you know, things that we write about and talk about and post. Hoinsey, I, I know uh, we've gotten inspiration and ideas for a, a lot of the stuff that we've written over the last couple of years from it. Yeah, you know, our, uh, the subtext uh, subscribers, you know, that are on, uh, that are following us, Joe, are, are, are smart, you know, serious baseball fans and have a, you know, good grip on the game and what's going on. And, they're, they're very inquisitive. So, you know, keep those, uh, keep the questions coming and keep uh, pushing us a little bit. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we can answer your questions with, with not just, you know, 
you know, answers to your questions, but what with stories and expand on that. All right. Speaking of smart guys with a grip on things, uh, that leads perfectly into our uh, top 25 most memorable personalities of uh, today. Uh, Monday, we're going to go with uh, another blind reveal here. Hoinsey, you ready to, to hear about this guy? I'm ready. All right. Uh, this right-handed pitcher was with the Indians from 1986 to 1991. Uh, his career totals 151 wins and 164 losses with 1,735 strikeouts. He's named one of the 100 greatest Indians back in 2001. Uh, spent seven seasons in Cleveland, a uh, record of 73-66 with a 3.62 ERA, 764 strikeouts. Uh, led the American League in complete games in 1986, and he's fourth all-time. This, this is the one that's going to give it away. He's fourth all-time for in Cleveland in wild pitches with 53. Uh, this could be none other than the candy man it has to be a Tom candy Addy, uh, the knuckleballer. Definitely. Definitely. I, I mean, in doing so, a little bit of research about Tom candy Addy, his, his journey to the big leagues was, was pretty bizarre. He was pitching in, in Vancouver. He was undrafted and, and pitching in Vancouver and, and sleeping on the infield in, in a, in a, in a sleeping bag. He was practically homeless up there. Yeah. He, you know, he didn't get drafted out of college. Uh, he, he went up to uh, Vancouver for, uh, you know, an independent team tryout. Uh, he, he made that team, but he didn't have a car. He didn't have any money. He was kind of sleeping in friends' houses. He, he said he slept in, at the ballpark a couple times, <laughs> whipped out his sleeping bag. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he started a campfire in, in right field or what, <laughs> but that sounds like candy eyes. Yeah, that, that, that does. An interesting guy. The guy's middle name is Caesar, Thomas Caesar Candiotti. I mean, that, right there, right off the right off the bat, you know that he's he's just going to be a little bit different, right? When when he's got that, he's he's not only you know a you know, a, a sort of a legend from the '80s in, in in Cleveland pitching, but you know he's a he was a really good bowler. He's in the Bowling Hall of Fame, the International Bowling Hall of Fame. I remember that. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's a great point. It's it, it's just weird to know that like he, he's this you know major league pitcher had this long career. He's also like you know better than a scratch bowler. I mean, he's good enough to be a Hall of Famer. Tough to throw a knuckleball with a bowling ball though. Well, I, you would think in, in bowling <laughs> you want to put as much spin on the ball as you can, and in, with a knuckleball you don't want any spin at all. Uh, did you ever talk to him about throwing a knuckleball? What, what was, what, did you ever like, just ask him, Hey, Hey, how'd you get into this? Or what was, what was his story about it? Well, you always kind of messed around with the knuckleball, I think in high school and college, but you know, when he got to Milwaukee, he eventually kind of worked his way. He was a rule five pick from, uh, from the Brewers off of the Kansas city roster. And, uh, you know, he had, he, it was a conventional pitcher. But then he hurt his hurt his elbow, and this was right around. You know, this was when the Tommy John surgery was still pretty new. You know, Tommy John had the surgery in '74. You know, uh, and uh, Candiotti had to have it in uh, '90. I mean, 1981. And uh, at up until the time that uh, that uh, Frank Job did the surgery on Candiotti, 
the the only successful his only successful patient had been Tommy John. You know, there had been wow. seven or eight or nine guys in between there that hadn't made it back. But uh, you know, Candy Adi, um, you know, had almost had to beg Job to do the surgery because they thought he would. You know, he he wasn't an established big leaguer, and he was more like a prospect than 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 anything else. And uh, and uh, Job did the surgery, and uh, you know, usually it takes, usually it takes, um, you know, what a year and a half, year a year and, and a half yeah. to come back. It took him two years to come back. But uh, he, when he did, you know, he, you know, he started throwing the knuckleball. And uh, one of the big things, um, the big influences when he finally came to Cleveland as, as a free agent, I think he, they signed him. You know, they signed Phil Negro, you know, the, the, the king of the knuckleball that same year at late in camp. And uh, so, you know, Negro, you know, he said, I know Candy Addy said, you know, listening to, to, to Negro talk about the knuckleball was like listening to Thomas Edison talking about electricity. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, you know, he learned a lot from him, but, but they, you know, Joe, they both threw the knuckleball different, you know, uh, Negro <clears throat> was kind of the traditional knuckleball, you know, push it out and push, push the pitch toward home plate. Candy mm -hmm. Addy threw it hard. You know, he's, he was really, <coughs> Excuse me, Candiotti was like a. He was his his one of his best pitch was his curveball. So he was a curveball pitcher that threw a knuckleball, and uh, you know so he threw it. He said he threw it as hard as he could, because because that was the way he could take the spin off the ball. Well, and if you ever watched, uh, he his his knuckleball really had a lot more bite, like. Uh, later guys that, that, that threw it, and we've, we've seen guys have success. Tim Wakefield jumps to mind, uh, R.A. Dickey, guys like that. But uh, Candy Addy's was the first that I ever really sort of noticed that his knuckleball had a lot of bite to it. When it, when it dove, it dove, you know, sharp. And like you said, it makes sense if he was a, a curveball guy primarily. Uh, you know, when, if you're going to throw it that hard, it's going to move a lot sharper than, you know, you don't want the thing flattening out, basically. Yeah. So. That's uh, that's where really, I I'll tell you. Growing up in the '80s and watching watching Candy Addy pitch, every kid my age, everybody you know out throwing in the yard was experimenting with it and playing with it. And the first time you get it to dance, and and your throwing partner sort of gives you that look like whoa, you know, as the eyes get buggy because of that. You know, that's that's Tom Candy Addy's influence on everybody who's my age who who sort of, you know, spent their, their youth growing up, just, just playing in the yard, trying to get that ball to dance like that. And uh, you know, when, when you got a buddy that could do it and, you know, almost, almost hitching the knees with a ball, that was, that was sort of the, uh, the, you know, just uh, it, it's, it's a callback to, you know, just learning how to learn about the game. It was fun. Yeah. And uh, you know, he, he, I remember Chris Bando was one of the Indians catchers at that time. And he said, Catching catching a candy out his knuckleball was like trying to catch a, a butterfly with a blanket in a windstorm. He, <laughs> he, he drove those. He drove Andy Allenson and, and Bando crazy trying to catch that. And plus they had Negro too. And uh, and uh, you know I I think it finally you know when when Alomar Sandy Alomar came in 1990 and then Joel Skinner was, had already been there. Um, you know Candy Addy really said those two guys 
really could handle the the uh, the knuckleball. They knew how to catch the knuckleball, but even then, Sandy, you know, I, there was a couple games. I won in in, uh, in uh, Chicago that I remember that he threw the knuckleball. And Candy, I mean, Sandy's tried to stop it with his hand and split the webbing in his, his right. between his fingers, had to get surgery. I think he did that once or twice at least. And, uh, you know, and uh, Candy, I didn't, you know, like most knuckleballers, there's not a lot of them left, but they usually travel with, a, you know, an oversized catcher's mitt that they give the catcher to, to handle the, to handle the pitch with. And uh, so that's, that's the glove they, those guys use. Yeah, like one of those ones that Slider goes out there to catch the uh, the ceremony yeah, first yeah, pitch. Right. Giant, uh, like a highlight scoop on his hand. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. What was Candiotti like uh, in the clubhouse away from, uh, you know, sort of, you know, just being on the field? Uh, uh, approachable? Was he, what, what kind of guy was he? Oh, he was a great guy. Really, really a good dude. Um, uh, you know, you could talk to him about anything. Uh, he's, I think he's broad, he's broadcasting Arizona Diamondback games now, but he was, he was just, you know, down to earth, good dude. Uh, and, uh, just, uh, you know, a fun guy to be around. He was kind of a, you know, kind of a prankster. I think he would, you know, he would stir things up in the clubhouse. He was always, you know, trying to get, trying to get a laugh out of somebody, but, uh, you know, the thing with, you know, with knuckleball pitchers, they, they have to really take care of their nails. You know, mm -hmm. you got to trim them back. You're, you break a nail, you're in trouble. He used to use stuff that uh, horse trainers use on the horses' hooves to make mm -hmm. them harder. He would put that on his nails. I, that always wow. freaked me out. I, I didn't know if he would start eating, you know, eating straw or just start winning. You know? Bring him, bring him, bring him an apple and leave it in his locker for him. Yeah, like yeah. That. yeah. That that's great. Yeah, yeah. Horse. Uh, Horse nail hardener. Well, hey, with people taking horse dewormer now uh, for for things, it it wouldn't surprise me if if Major League Baseball players started, you know, galvanizing their knuckles with uh, with horse. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, again, all right. Uh, Tom Candiotti, one of the top twenty five most memorable personalities uh, in Hoinsey's, uh tenure on the beat in Cleveland. Uh, we will be back again tomorrow with uh, another. Uh, unmistakable personality and we'll see if there are any further developments here on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. Owens, we'll talk to you then. Good deal, Joe.